1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you for tuning in to an hour of science. Also, a big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning.
2: Good morning, Dr. Shane.
1: Good to see you. Yeah, good All to dressed see you out too. In, I was going to say black, but I think it's purple.
2: I- I'm in Melbourne black, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, no, but I am enjoying this uh, somewhat balmy autumnal weather, though I have to say, I saw some John Quills blooming yesterday. Yes. And those are bulbs, and they're spring flowers. Are they confused? used or what
1: well everyone else is so it stands to reason some of the plants would be too
2: yeah it's wacky weather
1: i've got a whole lot of snow gear at home and every time it you know slightly gets cold the kids are saying can we go to the snow i'm like where <laughs> alaska because there's none here
2: i just don't think we should be seeing jonquils in may yeah, not bit... not in the southern hemisphere anyway
1: la, la niña Lenin, thanks la yeah Yeah, we'll get there Dr. Ray, good to see you Good morning, Dr. Shane I
3: was playing one of those well-known winter sports yesterday Frisbee <laughs> uh, <laughs> Was it Frisbee or Ultimate
1: Frisbee? Ultimate frisbee biz, you know, Beach Frisbee or Backyard Frisbee? It
3: was actually just Backyard Frisbee But I, I, do, I, do, I, do, I used to play Ultimate Frisbee That yeah. was a lot of fun Yeah,
1: because I, I did once have to tuck my tail between my legs When I made a joke about Ultimate Frisbee not being a real sport And uh... a colleague of mine in Santa Barbara, who you know, actually Mario Fiani, uh, you know, gave me quite a bit of grief over that. So I said, "Well, you know, I grew up; it wasn't a sport." So (laughs) (laughs) anyway, let's get into some science news, Dr. Crystal. What is floating your boat this week?
2: Well, I don't know if it's floating my boat; it's kind of keeping me awake at night. The fact that (laughs) bacteria have the uh, are developing the resistance to antibiotics at a faster rate than we are able to discover them, and Mm. this is something that really does keep me awake at night. The fact that you know we. might get to the point where there are and we are actually at the point where there are life-threatening infections Mm. which are untreatable with any antibiotic known to man it's pretty scary stuff however i was heartened this week to see a research publication um from a team of chemistry researchers uh from harvard university and and others um in the journal nature looking at these amazing new uh, synthetic pathways they've come up with a platform and they've made 300 new antibiotic drugs and they've done it based on a very old compound known as erythromycin now erythromycin is an antibiotic that's about 65 years old Mm. and it was originally found in soil bacteria and this is actually where we find most of our new most of our antibiotics have come from um mostly bacteria some some fungi like uh and um and uh, other things like you know, penicillin um, coming from mold spores.
1: That's the problem, isn't it? We find them, we don't make them. exactly.
2: We find them, don't yeah. make them, and so, and so because we don't of that, know how they work? Yeah, and we also don't know um, how to. Ch- <clears throat> we don't have a great chem- way of chemically changing them because mm-hmm. often when we find them in their raw form, like erythromycin, you can't give that straight because it's it's just not in the right formulation. Yep. So you've got to add a little, you know, you've got to sort of do a bit of molecular kind of decorating, and you kind of just like trim a little methyl group there, trim an ether group there, sort of turn a amide in. Into a sulfonamide, and you know you can kind of decorate around the edges of these large complex molecules, but you can't really change the structural framework. So with erythromycin, we you know that we currently the two kinds that we currently use in the in like hospital setting are like clathromycin and azithromycin, and they're kind of derivatives of that. But they can we can only do so much structurally at a molecular level. And so this team went right if we actually want to make changes to the fundamental framework of erythromycin, we're going to have to learn how to make it from scratch. And that's a massive effort. It took mm. them over five years yeah. to come up with a chemically synthetic pathway to do that. But they've done it. I, I shudder to think how many PhD students they churned through. <laughs> but they had to invent whole new chemistries to do it. And, so, and those chemistries will then go on to you know, provide huge benefits in other medicinal chemistry areas. It's kind of like a moon project. Mm. Like, can, mm. we, can we make erythromycin? You're crazy. Yep, yeah, let's give it a go. But, and so what they have done is they've published over 300 compounds this week in Nature that are based on erythromycin but have vastly different structural differences that we could have never done before. And the best bit of the research is that two of them in laboratory testing um, have shown activity against bacteria that are currently resistant to vancomycin. And vancomycin is one of our sort of like last resort Mm. antibiotics. And if you Mm. get stuff that's resistant to vancomycin, you know you're in trouble. So a couple of the compounds that they found are actually active in in the laboratory setting Mm. against vancomycin-resistant bacteria. So it's a good sign. Um, And it's also just goes to show uh, the the lengths that you have to go to at the moment to make um, and discover new antibiotic compounds. I mean, there's only four... Uh, international companies in the world who still have active um, R&D programs in this area. Um, and even the scientists who did this research said they really struggled for funding. And they had to get a lot of philanthropic funding and a lot of Harvard University internal funding to get this up. Um, but you know now they've spun it out into a company and they're hoping to further develop these mm. compounds and show that they're not just active in the lab but they're actually active in um, in, in the body. Mm. So um, so it's a good sign um, but I think it just goes to show what lengths you, we have to go to um, to really start creating some of those new antibiotic therapies
1: and i think the key there is creating them it's not finding them and just hoping for the best that the next bit of coral you dig up will have something new that will be effective i mean that that approach has worked for a long time but everyone knew that it would come to an end and it's coming to an end rapidly in a very Dangerous way now. So that that core understanding from molecular biology and so forth of how well, these things work, it's chem-
2: is, and it's chemistry. Yeah. And and you know, chemistry is undervalued as a science. Um, you know, uh, and I think that going back to being able to train really good chemists and people mm. studying chemistry at an undergraduate level and, and at a high school level. You know, we we need more people um, with these skills if we're going to actually be able to make the next generation of drugs.
1: Yeah, and maybe give them some money that is about innovate really innovative high risk stuff not incremental crap well that's a good way to fund people
2: well obama has recently launched a um a big program in the u.s uh for drug uh, for discovering new antibiotics mm. I, I don't know mm. much about the program but i do know that that the u.s government has put aside specific funding for that and you know i'd love to see something like that in australia because yeah. we've got some very talented scientists here, yeah. here we go.
1: now let's speak to a chemical engineer dr ray dr shane um you're not talking chemistry, though. Are you?
3: Well, I was trying not to today. I did find <laughs> that, that that pretty interesting, and and uh, and I agree. I mean, I, I just think the um, when antibiotics were discovered, pharmaceutical companies had a very different business model. Mm. Now, it's not always a drug that people are going to use one course for 14 days. It's things that are chronic tend to be bigger money makers. So yeah. there's a business model challenge there. Where that's when you need governments to help with the underlying science. Yep. Um, actually, what I was going to talk about was. Um, Drones or aerial robots, and you know, not and an aspect of it that maybe you don't always think about. I mean, yes, we've seen the great videos of that long surfing ride on YouTube yep. with the aerial drone, but this is, a, this is something that you have to remember with aerial drones they're all battery powered. Maybe there's a solar powered one, but if you want it to actually, any type of drone, whatever the size, to hang around for a while. If you just have it flying and hovering, its battery will wear out. And so people that make drones naturally look to birds and insects and go, well, how do they manage to get around And It's because a lot of the times they land and perch. Hmm. And, um, well, that sounds great. Okay, so we need to make the drone be able to land and perch and attach where it is. The catch is, you know, when a, a bird's really talented at that, it's not an easy thing. It takes a lot of stabilization and planning. I mean, the bird's wings pivot. It effectively causes a bird causes itself to stall and then grabs on a branch. Uh, even a honeybee or a bumblebee will hover, and then it cuts its wings and then uses its legs as a dampening system to catch onto something. And so in the world of, I mean, you're going to love this, MAVs, micro aerial vehicles, so we're talking insect size. Small ones, there's a real challenge in, sure, it has wings, and it can go and buzz around. Its battery isn't that big because it's not that big, and it's got this other challenge of, well, it, it doesn't really have much in the way of flight stabilization, and so getting these things to perch is actually quite a challenge. Mm. And, and and the things people have come up with have, have been hooks, clamps, something that basically looked like small little grappling hooks sticking onto something, and, and, and then you can perch on something, but you can't let go. And if you mm. want... And so the relaunch is also a, a challenge as well. So, if you actually want micro AVs for whatever applications, of course, when I was reading this article, they say applications. I, I really would think it's going to be spy, what, spy stuff, and surveillance, and invasions of privacy. But, but fly, literally, a fly on the wall. <laughs> Maybe you could say for weather sensors, temperature sensors, yeah. there's probably a public good thing there, too. Anyway, it, it, finding, finding pat, uh, ways it, MAVs can actually attach and relaunch is actually a bit of a challenge. And so this week in uh, science, researchers from MIT have actually come up with a, quite a big advance in this area. And, and what they've done is uh, they have their little micro AV, and you can, it, it, it looks adorable. It's got little like bumblebee wings, and it's sticking up in a cylinder. And on the end of it, it, just underneath the pad that lands, it's got this um, foam core, little form, foam compression landing for, part for dampening. But they used electrostatic adhesion. So we're talking about static electricity the same way if you rub your feet on the carpet and then touch a friend and you get a spark. That type of charge, and they're actually using that to stick to things. And it can stick to steel. (laughs) It can stick to plywood. It can stick to a leaf. And because it uses a little bit of a voltage bias, actually it's quite a high voltage, just a, a low current, it creates this great electrostatic charge on its pad, and it can stick to things, and then it can turn the charge off, and it can release uh, and it's just, I mean, it's cute. It's adorable. You see the little robot. You go, oh, it's kind of like a robotic insect. Isn't that cute? Because it has a dampening system that kind of look like legs. But um, it's just really fascinating. Nobody had ever thought, oh, well, most of the time people go, well, how do we get things to stick to unexpected surfaces? And a lot of that time people think about geckos. So mm-hmm. gecko pad adhesion is a very common one where it uses these intermolecular forces to stick. And then it's able to stick to a surface and it gets off the surface by kind of peeling its leg off the yeah. surface. So that's a little difficult to implicate in drones because you don't have that much weight. You don't have much that much mm. function. You know, you, you have on and off for the wings. You don't really have stabilizers. There's, it's not like a plane that has things that can change. So this is quite a little innovative, cute little way mm. to, uh, to get things to snatch.
1: Yeah, I like it. Yeah. yeah. Nothing like a micro AV. Because <laughs> I know I do have a little drone I bought for my son. The bloody thing constantly needs recharging. <laughs> And you know, these batteries don't last. Yeah. So you play with it for six months and then they no longer charge. That's when the you know, these cheap sort of import crap. Anyway, um <clears throat> now, uh Mars science. Always get fascinated by Mars science. I did once say that Mars was a boring planet, but um You, you had know. to take it back. Well, I haven't completely taken it back. I mean I'll take it back when we put some people there and they look at it and go, oh, this is awesome now pluto pluto's an awesome planet, but anyway, uh, Mars does have some amazing history and, and one of the things that we 've had trouble with is actually trying to work out what that history is and so for example, you probably heard all these stories about you know ancient Mars oceans and so forth and the the immediate question is if you were um, if you were you know, out on a boat here on on Earth and you looked at the shoreline, you pretty much can recognise it's a shoreline. So the question is, where are the shorelines on Mars from the ancient Earth oceans, ancient Mars oceans? And these have been, you know, pretty much a a no-go in terms of finding them. We haven't found these ancient shorelines. So we're pretty sure that these oceans were there. You know, we we find these subsurface um, deposits, all these things. There is a lot of evidence of flow on Mars, so we we know that we we've seen that we've seen these pictures. There's even current pictures of flow. It's amazing, but where's the evidence of these gigantic oceans that covered vast portions of the planet? We can't see these shorelines, and and even if, if you think of. Um, the variety of shorelines that you see on Earth. You know, we go from eroded cliffs to long, flat beaches. You know, I mean, there's quite a range of different styles of shorelines that we see, and we just don't see that sort of stuff on Mars. So it's, um, it's interesting. However, um, some work that's been done um, by a guy named Alexei Rodriguez, and um, he's from the Planetary Science Institute in Tuscan, he's been looking at the possibility... Um, of things that can kind of destroy those shorelines or remove those shorelines. And it's kind of a cool story how he came up with this. He visited the um, sort of impact areas of the 2011 Japanese Tsunami that we all know that caused the Fukushima Power Reactor to go critical, blah, blah, blah. And he looked at the sort of damage to the shorelines and what was happening there. And he said, "Well, well, hang on. This is the similar sort of features to some of the features that are being seen on Mars where you see these sort of upflow conditions where you can see evidence that water flowed uphill. Which you think, okay, hang on, what's going on there? But if you think of a, a large meteorite, of which Mars has been hit by multiple in its history, hitting one of these oceans, causing a 120 meter high tsunami at the shoreline, and running this stuff up that shoreline, then you start to look for different features, not the traditional shoreline features, but the aftermath of tsunami features. And a lot of what. Um, what he's, he's looked at in terms of the imaging that's coming back from Mars, are consistent with this. Now, this is not proof, you know, blah, 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 but it is indicative of the fact that maybe this is something that's happened, and maybe it's a good explanation for why some of these shoreline features are not visible, which is... Um yeah, it's a pretty cool hypothesis. Yeah, look, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I think until you actually, until we, we can get people on Mars and start really looking at this stuff in detail, you won't be able to confirm some of this science, but no one's come up with an explanation that's good enough so far to say, well, hang on, <laughs> you know, you've got all these oceans, where are the shorelines? And he sort of said, well, hang on, I've looked at what this, this sort of damage looks like and what some of these features look like here on Earth um, in Japan, and hey, we're seeing similar things on Mars, so maybe... This is what's caused it. And we know there's some pretty good reasons for um, for these tsunamis to have occurred over a you know, billion-year history. Um, whammo, maybe this is uh, a, a real explanation that's viable. So I thought that was... Um I thought that was quite, quite interesting. Now, we have some uh, great guests coming up on the show today, and next is uh, Drew Barry, and he is an, an animator, a scientific animator, and one of probably the best in the world that released, the best I've ever, ever come across. So, you know, my sample size is not huge, but um, still, his stuff is amazing. So we're going to talk to Drew in uh, just a few moments. Until then, here's some music. You're listening to Einstein and GoGo on 3 R. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Uh, we're back. You're listening to Einstein the Go Go on 3 Triple R. In the studio with us is Drew Barry from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Drew, welcome to Triple R. Hey, thank you for having me. Look, it's great to have you in. And uh, some of us in the studio, myself and Dr. Crystal in particular, have had uh, some engagement with you in the past, and we've seen your work. You're an animator. I mean, how would you describe what you do? I mean, I, I, I've seen what you do, but how do you describe it? Um, I'm a
0: uh, sort of a science artist, and I um, what I'm trying to do is take, show people. The actual real data, what we're discovering about the molecular world and the cells inside our bodies, mm-hmm. and show people. So I'm trying. To, I'm a. i am trying i am create visualizations that reveal the nature of what we're discovering and strip away all the fancy language, uh, the verbal language that scientists usually use for describing yeah. what they do.
1: Now I've seen a lot of this in the past, and to be frank. A lot of it's just crap, but your work is quite—it's quite different to that. I mean, this is why it stands out, and you've won, um, you know, BAFTA and Emmy awards for for this work. I mean, why is it? I mean, what's the difference there? I mean, I've seen some of this animation from other groups, and, and to be frank, it's just not very good. It doesn't tell the story. How are you doing things differently beyond just the quality of the production, but that the science is really in there? It's it's more. Um, it's more appropriate for, for the storytelling than, than some of the other versions that you see.
0: Uh, well, okay, so my method is very uh, unusual. There are a few others uh, that I consider my peers um, over, over in the US primarily. And um, the idea is that it comes from the science. We, so uh, I don't, uh, when I'm given a topic to work on, um, I don't uh, have a preconceived notion of what that's going to be like. I, mm-hmm. I try and tabula rasa. I, I always just hit the scientific papers and it, it emerges all the animation's Emerge from the data, not the other way around. So I start with real models and then work out the visualisation afterwards. Yeah. So,
2: so when you look at stuff, you go, oh, I've just taken a bit of artistic licence here. That doesn't come into it with your animations. Oh, it absolutely
0: does. It is storytelling. Oh, yeah. um, so <laughs> I definitely... Um, it is. You have to... You're, you're, I'm telling a story visually through a sequence, a mm. uh, mm. series of animations. Um, so it is, there is artistic uh, design and composition and storytelling that, that goes with that. But it is um, very much... Uh, uh, it emerges from the data itself. And, and uh, I, I, I combine multiple multiple forms of data uh, whether it's you know 3d models of molecule or dynamic behaviors or time-lapse microscopy and use all of those combine them to create the visualization so it's a holistic kind of view mm. um yeah so that's where it comes from
1: so I, i've um seen for example well, let's take for example one of your malaria um animations where you see the the malaria parasite into the body then it enters the blood and so forth and so on um that to me in terms of audience seemed to be kind of for me for a, a physicist who you know didn't know a blood cell from a skin cell, um, and that made a lot of sense to me. But I, I assume that you must also do stuff for a more technical and scientific audience. Is that right?
0: Uh, so it's almost always the same thing, where it's it's um, it comes from the the scientific papers, and um, uh, so. It, it, it doesn't actually have an audience per se, it's, okay. it's more about the verbal description you give, so the, the, the visualizations are as accurate as I can make them, they're you know measured, they're from different kinds mm-hmm. of data, but but it's then the story, the, how you describe it verbally that uh, determines your audience, so th- the same animation on malaria uh, can uh, be used for school kids, or it can be used right. in Papua New Guinea for explaining to the villagers what, why they should be using bed right. nets, it, it can be and, and they, or it can be used in a peer, at a scientific conference if you want to do it that way because the data the the way the parasites moving the, the scale the location mm. is um reflective of um it's like a visual review paper like yeah. the, you know of
3: of where we're at yeah. So um, maybe over the last five to seven years, there have been an awful lot of leaps in, you mentioned microscopy and microscopy images. There's been an awful lot of leaps in the resolution, the number of different uh, parameters they can track, which often ends up in multiple color images. So uh, given that you, you, you've been looking at, at data per, for, for that time period, has the advances of the microscopy or some of the experimental methods made it more exciting or less exciting because they, they give you a bigger picture or does that constrain you more? Uh, no,
0: it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. Days, um, the the, micros- the the technology of microscopy is just mind blowing, and but it's just more and more. Just we're inundated with these incredible things that are being discovered. Uh, the problem with a lot of microscopy data is that it needs to be interpreted. Um, you have to understand how that image came about, um, that the the how the microscope works, how what what is actually. Imply, or what? Is it, what are you actually looking at when you look at the, some of this, this imagery? So uh, it does still require interpretation, um, but that's what I would do. But uh, but it's the the amount. I mean, uh, uh, bioinformatics. In, there's so many areas where it's just a tremendous revolutions going on. We're inundated with these discoveries that are mind boggling, and then they need to be explained back to the public. So uh, I definitely um, that uh, microscopy data was my favorite stuff. So I mean, that that's when you really <laughs> see stuff in action, and um, it's it's so evocative. Yeah. Okay. So,
2: Drew, you're based at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. So, you you must have done a lot of diverse things around, you know, malaria, breast cancer, genomics. Um, what, what's potentially the strangest thing you've ever been asked, or the most difficult thing you've ever been asked to to visualise?
0: Ooh, most difficult. What, okay, most challenging. Well, well, one one I did. Um, this was two thousand and five. Was on apoptosis, and I did. I took. A, um, I had luxury of time back then. It was a, about twelve a month project, and I wanted to follow because I would go to lectures at Wehi, and they would talk about. Um, the signal uh, cascades, cascades of molecules. And I was like, well, they had these messy noodle diagrams of arrows pointing to different and all these acronyms for these different molecules. And I was like, what is actually, what is it, what would that look like? And so I crawled through that uh, story and followed a sequence of a, a cascade of molecules and did as a, created as a visualization and um, trying to, to you know, what was buried in in words and complicated language in the papers and try and reveal what that would look like. And so that that was, and I actually had that one published as a scientific paper. Um, and uh, so I went to peer review and went you know, as, a, as a visual review of the topic. So um, that was the one I spent the most
1: effort.
2: And as someone who's had to sit through a lot of lectures on apoptosis, <laughs> being, you know, the ways in which cells die, I can only thank you for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Drew, um, Dr. Ray asked you about the, the changes that have occurred in mm. things like microscopy and that. But also, I mean, you've been doing this at WeHi now for 20 years, and I have to say, WeHi, you should have shared him around a bit because uh, yeah. you know, it's amazing work. Or maybe they have. Um, But the computing capabilities have changed phenomenally over that period. I mean... What does what that meant for the sort of work you're doing? I mean, this, this at one time, I remember, you know, television shows like Babylon 5 where no one could do it but the big studios, that kind of digitization. But now everyone seems to be able to do it to some degree. So what, what's changed for you in your work? Oh, it's, it's, it's uh, extraordinary. So hand-in-hand
0: hand with the change, the revolution in science has been the revenue, revolution in technology. And really, okay, so to go back, I, I was of the first generation that grew up with AXIS. I had an Amiga and yep, early computers. Too. Yeah, yeah. Awesome so you know, Profoundly, you know, anyway. <laughs> so um, so, I grew up with computer graphics and was always fascinated mm. by that and But then, okay, so, in two thousand and three, I did a big TV series and to pull that um, series of animations off, um, I had an um, eighty thousand dollar computer and I had twenty thousand dollars with of software so it was a huge barrier to entry Now, any kid with an iPad, quite frankly, or a, any decent laptop can easily blow out of the water, what that technology was back then. Yeah. And you can download free software, which is everything as capable as mm. what they're doing in Hollywood. So anyone can actually give this a go. And I do see this as um, a generational change where now students are uh, kids, school kids are fluent in visual communication and assembling a story through video mm. and that's really radically different where it used to be really s- difficult to get access and to do now they can just muck around with it and, mm. do, it and do it as part of their thing so it's it's completely blown
1: open now as, yeah. as far as and it's a whole i you know i look forward to the future so so speaking of the future drew that's a nice segue because i was going to ask you what what is next for you i mean you've been doing this work now for walter all-in student and other organizations for 20 years um i mean some of your work is sort of it's it's almost warranting of a, an art exhibition of some type. I mean, what, what's what's coming up for you? Uh, yeah, so actually that
0: that is... Okay, so most of my work is very much for didactic, uh, um, aimed at education, mm-hmm. um, to, tools to, to teach yep. to the public and to the school kids. Um, where I'm most excited and interested is uh, where my work, goes into an art gallery um, and is used and, and viewed as art. And the reason is it reaches a huge new audience who are not there, switch, they're, they're, they don't think science is for them, and it gets them engaged and gets them asking, gives them some sense of what was being discovered. And it's, it's wonderful, it's mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. And then they come back, because the art-growing crowd just put so... They, 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 they will really reflect on a work. And what, what is this art about? What is this piece about? What is this, the artist trying to say? What does it say about me? Like, they'll, they'll do a sort of... And, mm-hmm. and, and they don't think science is a piece of entertainment and they come away actually being, you know, turned on by it. So yeah. you know, that's that's really uh, so I do have a, quite a few. So um, I, I do probably a half dozen um, exhibitions each, each year, yep. my work. So I'm doing uh, Warsaw. There's going to be an exhibition of my work coming up. and um, Yeah, and also like the White Knight Festival and festivals like that, um, mm. a projection on architectural projections. So there's a number of opportunities that I'm doing, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, Drew, look, it's, it's fabulous stuff. And for anyone who hasn't uh, seen it, I mean, just have a look at the Walter Eliza Hall Institute website. There's a lot of visualizations there. Or if you
2: drive down um, Royal Parade, you can actually actually see there's this amazing uh, projection inside the Walter and oh, Hall yeah, Institute. Yeah. You can see from the street. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Cool. Yeah, that, that's
0: the Illuminarium. Uh, so it's yeah. a six-story um, LED curtain. And so yeah. it's on, on uh, in the mornings and um, as the sun goes down in the yeah. evenings. Um, and it's just what, what the idea of that is, is, it's a revolving giant pillar of color and motion. But all the imagery you'll see on that screen are all from the labs and not doctored actual up. Data. They're actual yeah. data and they're yeah. extraordinarily beautiful yeah. just by their own nature. And yeah. so the idea of that luminarium is to provoke people to look over and consider what's going on over there.
2: You get a great view from the number 19 tram. That's
1: it. <laughs> i the school kids who yeah. gather there. Yeah. Or look up from your mobile phone if you're driving and just peek out the window. Okay. <laughs> um, Drew, thanks so much for coming in. Thank uh, you thanks for uh, having keep, me. keep up this, this good work because it is, it is so important that our science communication is accurate and I think that's what your work does do. It shows that it can be accurate, it can be, be visually spectacular, and it can get those messages across in the way that actually have real meaning. So um, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. Drew Barry is from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. We're going to take a break now for some music, and we'll be back in a moment talking about uh, heart disease and how we might be able to get around it in the future.
0: Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
1: Yeah, we are here on Triple R. Very happy to have in the studio Professor Andrew Tonkin, who is from Epidemiology and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. Andrew, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Now, you're working on an incredibly exciting um, topic, as far as I'm concerned, because it's about my future, um, presumably. It it, it involves um, cardiovascular research and the possibility that we could use our. Uh, vaccines for pneumococcal as a preventative now this seems to be these two things seem to be a mile apart first of all let's start with um problems with the heart what what sort of things are you focused on
4: we're really focusing on things that are relating to hardening of the arteries what's called atherosclerosis mm-hmm. and that is the commonest public health problem that we have it's typically associated with things such as heart attack and stroke
1: yeah so really that's what we're tackling okay and and what leads to that i mean is it all lifestyles or genetics as well a combination of the two it, it appears that about 80 percent of
4: the variation in the risk of heart attack and the same for stroke relates to lifestyle and behavioral factors things such as smoking elevated blood cholesterol elevated Mm. blood pressure and diabetes so it's not just our genes it's different from those monogenic conditions where which are rarer generally this is there are many genes involved but it's mainly environmental factors Mm. okay so things we can change Things Um, we can change. And I think when we talk about the vaccine trial, in fact, we mustn't forget Mm -hmm. that underlying everything
1: is the need for lifestyle therapy. Yeah. Now, the the vaccine is an interesting one. It's obviously not used uh, at the moment for to treat heart conditions. I mean, this is a pneumococcal vaccine, right, that you're investigating?
4: That's exactly right. At the the present time, pneumococcal vaccination is is free and available to people over the age of 65. Mm -hmm. Aboriginal and Torres Mm -hmm. Strait Islander people uh, over the age of 50. And it's recommended for people who are at higher, higher risk of having invasive pneumococcal disease, people who smoke, people who have chronic lung disease, people who have diabetes. So this is a novel potential application which is based on... Actually, mm. scientific data. Okay. Now let's let's focus on pneumococcal for a moment. What what exactly is that, and what does that do to the body? Pneumococcal disease. It, it, it's a streptococcus, strep pneumonia, a bacterium, which which typically is associated with with pneumonia, which can and it's the, it's really the commonest
1: cause of pneumonia mm-hmm. that we have in our society. Okay. And so the vaccine prevents that, especially in at-risk groups. It's it's hard then, you know, in my mind to make the connection between a pneumonia vaccine and preventative heart treatments. That's exactly right. But the the fascinating data
4: is that an overview of about eight observational studies and that's the limitation we can talk about that limitation if you Mm -hmm. wish overview of about eight studies shows that if people receive the pneumococcal vaccine that they have over a period of a few years protection against having acute coronary syndrome such as such as a heart attack myocardial infarction it appears very likely that what may happen is that there's cross reactivity of one of the components of the pneumococcal vaccine with oxidised LDL cholesterol and that's the worst form of LDL cholesterol which is the if you like underpinning the hardening of the arteries so Mm. therefore the body might be tricked you might develop antibodies which will then actually prevent the atherosclerosis and we believe that the trial just needs to be tested the reason for that is in an observation studies there may be confounding we just can't mm. control for certain things such as socioeconomic position other
1: things that might lead to protection independent of the vaccination mm. it seems as though every other week at the moment on the program we're interviewing someone from an area whether it be yours or or cancer or whatever else it says, you know, actually the immune system is the way to go. We haven't tried it before, but this seems to be the new way to attack many of these problems. Well,
4: I think that's right. And I think the other thing that I'd add to that is that inflammation is important in many diseases mm. as well. And if you take, for example, influenza vaccination, you, you do get, probably by decreasing infection, you, de- you actually minimise the inflammatory cascade that might build up uh, the hardening of the arteries. And indeed, it's been shown again that you can get a reduction in heart attack after the uh, after having the influenza vaccine. Fascinating.
2: I was just going to say. So once you have these observational studies, what actually can be done in laboratory settings to try and find the mechanisms behind, um, you know, whether or not these antibodies exist and what their targets are, and and how are you, um, are you able to dissect that out, or is doing a large clinical study the only way of finding that information?
4: No, I think indeed there are. There's evidence from mice. Uh, studies that, in fact, giving the pneumococcal vaccine can actually generate and elicit the, those antioxidized LDL antibodies. So there are the, the, some conflicting data, but there is that supporting basic science as well as the mm. epidemiologic observational data.
1: Now, Andrew, the next step now is you 're recruiting some 6,000 men and women between the ages of uh, 55 to 60. Yes. To to go into a study to actually check this out. I mean, tell us about this. Uh, how how does this program work? It, well, first of all, it's an an HMRC funded study, a
4: large clinical mm-hmm. trial. A uh, thousand people will be recruited across six sites or six centres throughout Australia, including one thousand in Melbourne. And basically, what and people will be mailed through the Department of Health and Human Department of Human Services to see whether they'd be willing to consider and then go to the further step of seeing if they're eligible to enter the trial. Mm-hmm. So, and that is to really maintain their privacy. So it's been front, using the Medicare data set to, to, to mail out. And what we'd really be grateful if people would just consider this because if they're mm-hmm. in the that 55 to 60-year-old age group, we're selectively targeting people within a 25-kilometre radius in terms of their postcodes uh, from the, the sites around around Australia. So it's 25 kilometres radius from Caulfield, in our case, mm-hmm. which is where people would come. Just one visit, less than an hour, and then with their consent, if they're eligible, they're then randomised to receive the vaccine or a saline placebo. And with their consent, there's follow-up by linkage to the standard hospital hospital
1: an minister of health care records. Mm. Now, one of the things I'm always curious about in this scenario is the pneumococcal vaccination is recommended for people in this age range anyway. So if I don't know if I've got it or the placebo... Should no. I? How, how does that work? No, no. In fact, it's it's
4: we are targeting people between the age of fifty five to sixty, oh, so there are at least okay.
1: five years
4: follow up, and then it's recommended. People and then they over, get it anyway over the age of sixty five. Right. If in fact we find on the screening procedure that people have conditions for which they should receive the pneumococcal vaccination, it's recommended yep. they are then referred on to have that, so they don't go into the trial. Mm. So we're really targeting people who wouldn't otherwise
1: be eligible. Mm. And how how do you know if it is being effective? So you've got these, you know, thousand people in each of these six centres and they're all in the trial. There are, some of them are getting the actual drug, some of them are not and then after five years you, you follow up. I mean, what, what what are you looking for at that point in terms of um, indicators that it's actually working? At, at that time we're looking
4: for the combined outcome of fatal and non-fatal heart attack or severe angina mm-hmm. leading to hospitalisation or stroke. So that is the the, out, the hard outcome. On the other hand we're looking at proxy measures that might say how this might be effective. So we're also going to be looking at antibody levels against both pneumococcal and also against strep pneumonia and also against oxidised LDLs. So we'd be looking at those measures that might say this is the way it's working.
2: So apart from being sent a letter in the mail asking you to participate, can people actively volunteer for the trial?
4: At this time, they would be it it will be just responding to the letters coming in the mail. We We hope that we'll recruit sufficient numbers in that way.
2: So you're asking People to have a look out for that if you're in that age group and um, and potentially respond to it if they're interested in being part of the it, study.
4: That's exactly right, and we you know would be extremely grateful if people would read the
1: letter, see so mm. if they're interested, and if they they might be eligible. Yeah, um, Andrew, thanks so much for coming in. I think this is it, it's really interesting to see, and and as I say, the more we hear about the immune system, the more it seems to be the key to treating so many different conditions that we're seeing in society at the moment. Of course, it doesn't uh, preclude the lifestyle choices that people can make to you know make themselves avoid these conditions but um as you say there are groups where it's it is difficult it is unavoidable and and i think um if if this works this is a this is an incredible breakthrough so thanks for chatting to us today on triple r many thanks shane professor andrew tonkin is from monash university we're going to take a break now for some music and we'll be back in just a moment uh with our final guest for today from La Trobe. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. In the studio uh, with us is our third uh, guest for today, Georgia atkins smith is a PhD candidate from the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science at Latrobe University. Georgia, welcome.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Look, it's great to have you in. Now, you're working in an area that involves white blood cells and how they die. I, I didn't even know they did. Well, that's not true. I kind of figured they would eventually. But um, what, what's going on there? I mean, we produce white blood cells as part of our immune system, right? I mean, mm-hmm. what, what is the job of white blood cells in the body?
5: So, white blood cells, is, firstly, is a whole different a series of types of white blood cells. Okay. Um, and I guess they're progenitor cells for lots of different kinds of cells, so they can reform and then they can differentiate to a series of other cells like macrophages. So these are the ones which are in charge of basically eating up and removing all of the cell debris. Mm, okay. So these white blood cells or monocytes. They're involved in a series of inflammatory processes and basically regulating the immune system. So they are key immune cells in the human body.
1: Okay. And in terms of just the ratio of sort of red blood cells to white blood cells, I mean, uh, we obviously have a lot more red blood cells, don't we? I mean, are, are, they, are white blood cells kind of rare? or is there a loss of them? How many do we have in the body? We
5: have lots and lots of white blood cells. I think, uh, I guess the white blood cells have a very um, short lifespan, so they form and they will undergo the programmed cell death quite quickly, so the actual lifespan is quite short Mm -hmm. in comparison to other cell types. I guess that's what you want, kind
2: of, Mm -hmm. because if you've got a whole bunch of white blood cells running around attacking things, you kind of want to turn them on when you need them and then when you don't need them, Mm -hmm. turn them off again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Now, let's talk about the cell death. Um, This is something that you're obviously working on. Mm -hmm. The this I always hear this term programmed cell death. What, I mean, what, what what's going on here? Is the body? putting a clock or is it a chemical response you know what, why do they die and mm. how do you program it to happen
5: so within the human body there's, there's billions of cells which die every single day and most of the time this is through the programmed cell death which is called apoptosis mm-hmm. and this can be induced through two different ways basically from in, intrinsic or extrinsic so basically external single signals or inside signals and this is important because if there are um, harmful cells within the body um, for example to have gotten really old or infected by certain uh, viruses mm-hmm. or cancer cells, we need a way to kill them and remove them from the body before they induce harm. Okay. So it's really important to induce this um, programmed cell death and in particular programmed cell death or apoptosis it's very important because it's highly regulated and therefore they, the body controls it so it doesn't induce any more harm or rather there's other types of cell death called necrosis which is quite harmful and can induce a. serious of inflammatory responses. Okay. Okay. So the cells you're studying, monocytes. How are they? Do they do it?
2: Do they die differently to other cells? Um, what 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 is it make that makes monocyte death so interesting to you?
5: Yeah. So what we've recently just found is that in comparison to nearly all cell types that we've looked at, that monocytes undergo this really unique and um, highly coordinated morphological changes of cell death. So once this pathway of cell death has been induced, they go through this series of morphological changes. So what changing shape and changing changes, size? Yeah, so shape changes so they will start to form these um, blebs um, up, um, on, the, on the cell surface, like balloon-like structures then these push outwards to form these really long membrane protrusions which break apart into these really small membrane vesicles and this, this has never been seen before so when we first saw this in the monocyte, we were firstly so excited and like why is a cell dying in this really regulated way so this is really important finding and we're now looking to see how this is implicated in the removal of these of cell debris from the body and also intercellular communication hmm.
2: so how do you study that like like how what are the things you
5: do in the lab to actually visualize and watch that like how do you spy on monocytes so um a lot of it is um i guess in vitro studies at the moment um and we use a time-lapse microscopy so we can set up an experiment and put in our cells in a little um dish i guess and then we'll induce cell death we use um uv radiation to induce cell death
1: oh that old chestnut <laughs> that's the right.
5: Yeah and then <laughs> pretty much yep. and then we we'll, um, we'll use time-lapse microscopy so i can basically set up the um, the confocal micro- microscope to take images of the cells dying every 2 minutes for about 4 hours wow. so we capture the entire process of cell death from start to finish mm-hmm. i think that this is also one of the key aspects as to why I guess everyone says, how come you have found this and no one else? And because we use the entire time-lapse from start to finish, we've been able to monitor the whole process, where traditionally people kind of look at the end process of cell death or just different characteristics rather than the morphological changes.
1: One of the things I I always um, wonder is when you you speak about that, how many cells are we talking about here? Is it three that you kind of... These are my favourite three and they fit in the microscope image and I'm going to watch these guys die? Or are you talking about like looking at a thousand cells, some of which... Other type you're, so, you're investigating.
5: Yeah, I've done a lot of um, quantification. So, out of all of these um, monocytic cell lines that we use, it's beto- over sixty percent of the cells will die in this very regulated okay, way. Okay,
1: right, right. So, and it, do you, do you have any sort of understanding of why some of them? Die first. I mean, is there a you know? It's kind of like you know, you put the popcorn in the microphone in the microwave, and um, you know, one goes first. Like there's there's got to be re- to be a flaw or something, a reason yeah. for that. Do we do we know why they're the?
5: Oh, uh, I guess it's just be, um, due to the pathway of cell death. So um, depending on um when they're exposed to the UV, sometimes they mm-hmm. might be um, more protected or right. just like the actual initiation of cell death maybe a bit slower in certain cell types. I guess due the due to the age. But hmm. due to the whole pathway. Okay.
3: When, when you said they, uh, the cells form blebs and then tendrils, and then you used the word vesicle, which is mm-hmm. kind of a, a double-coated lipid membrane that works as a little spherical container floating yes. around. so what the? <laughs> it, it, sorry. It's like a little small <laughs> container from, yeah. made up of cell membrane. Okay. It, does it, does that involve anything in signalling? Is it sending out a message because it is a vesicle and those things can carry stuff around in them?
5: Yeah, exactly. So that's exactly the things that we're looking at at the moment. Um, as I mentioned, this field is quite overlooked at the moment, but there are probably four or five papers in the past which have shown that these vesicles can contain DNA and um, RNAs and other type of nucleic acid and proteins which can aid signalling. So now lot of people in our lab we're trying to find in the monocytes when they form these vesicles that are so unique in morphology, what is inside these and how the other cells interacting, and what are the consequences of this uptake.
2: Because mm-hmm. I, I guess in a lot of ways in nature, if, if something is doing something that's highly regulated and very repeatable, there's got to be a reason why this is happening. And is this something that you that, that helps or hinders response to infection? Is this something we want to boost or is this something we want to
5: prevent? Or yeah, does it depend? It's basically like a double-edged sword and it varies in lots of cases. So I guess in one aspect of things, um, part of my project is looking at virus viral infection. And we actually are finding in my initial studies at the moment that viruses may be able to hijack this process and hide within inside these vesicles and use it as a mechanism of spread. Mm. But on the other side of things... Like the, a little escape pod. Yes, like, like, exactly. Like the cells I'm
2: in is dying. Quick, I've got to get out. I'll take this little shuttle. Like it's a bit, bit kind of star wars
3: <laughs> we already had the lightsaber sound for uv light so yeah it's yeah, just kind of yeah. To go it's,
5: yeah it's just like we just send it out in the pod mm. and so completely evading the immune system because mm. all the other immune cells just detect this bit of cell fragment as a part of our cell but inside it are all these harmful viruses mm. so in that case we would want to block it and inhibit it and i guess that's where a lot of our key findings have come in because we've identified a series of commonly used pharmaceutical compounds like an antidepressant which can completely block this entire process so therefore we have a lot of therapeutic potential with these findings
1: so is this known that these processes are blocked by some of these chemicals because i mean i don't remember reading that on the side effect box of you know any of these things i mean that oh you and know, by the way your um, your white cell you know the the, the program death cycle is going to be blocked by this no you so might want to be aware of that
5: this is completely new. So this yeah. is, was only published in our research last year in Nature Communications. Yeah. So we've, my supervisor did a, a crazy um, drug screen where he screened thousands and thousands of commonly used pharmaceutical compounds right. and found that some in particular had these dramatic effects on cell death. And one in particular was his antidepressant.
1: Yeah, And is it thought that that would have a... a uh, you know, a, a physiological effect on, on the body or is it too low level for that?
5: I guess um, the concentrations that people will be taking these drugs are, are not as right. high as what we yep. use them. But in for our in our situation, it's really exciting because we can look at the compounds of these drugs and the the structure that they have and then try to develop other compounds which could be used at the in vivo relevant concentrations. Mm.
1: Georgia, it's interesting stuff. Uh, blood cell death. I, you know, hadn't really looked into it. I knew that knew that it happened but didn't know why. Um, good luck with the work. And how long until you finish your PhD? Uh, probably two and a half. Two and a, two right, and a half. so you've done f- a fair bit in the first little bit. <laughs> yeah,
5: so I <I'm> just, <laughs> just started my second year this year. Okay.
1: So. Yeah, kind of sounded like you were towards the end because you've uh, had quite good results. Um, thanks so much for coming in and, and good luck with your next couple of years.
5: Thank you so much for having
1: me. Georgia Atkins-Smith is a PhD candidate from the Trobe University Institute for Molecular Science at La Trobe University. Um, well, we're mo- almost out of time. I'm still thinking about that... Uh, that drug that you were talking about, eryth- erythromycin? Erythromycin. Yeah, I was just want, you know, because you, you mentioned, you was know, like going to the moon, and I was thinking, what would Kennedy's speech be like? You know, we choose to pronounce these words. We choose to pronounce erythromycin and the other ones. No, you know, it's but, just like you know, yeah,
2: the, this is, this is, this is it, but, one small synthetic step for uh, <laughs> one, one, one chemical leap for mankind.
1: Uh, you know, please don't change channels because Edith's coming up in just a minute. <laughs> we don't want to crucify poor Cam by making bad jokes. But it, it is interesting. We don't... Um, we just we don't use these terms in ways that people get very often. So it's um this is why I love talking to Drew. You know, actually hearing about the science getting out there in a the way that people can um people can acknowledge and and grab onto. So And all the science that we're hearing in the political fray at the moment.
2: Uh, or yes. not. Well, no, I think um, didn't the Greens launched their science policy yes, on Friday, yep. so um, we're starting to see science and innovation creeping into the, the the national conversation at a much stronger level.
1: Yeah, it should so be the only. You know, I still, you know, gloves off. I keep saying this, but climate should be the number one ticket item um, on the political uh, spectrum at the moment. It is rarely spoken about by the major parties, which is a real shame, and I think it needs to be at the absolute top of the list always so uh, anyway that's my uh, my piece for uh, the last 30 seconds of the show dr crystal thanks so much always a pleasure dr ray thank you always fun uh live for doing our twitter feed she's been tweeting away sending all sorts of stuff i don't know she might just be playing games i'm not sure but i can't see what she's up to uh i'm dr shane until next week remember science is everywhere thanks so much for listening to einstein and go go this has been a podcast from free triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne